thanks kumar um, it's such a pleasure to be doing this with professor yasmin today um, I, as kumar just briefly mentioned that everybody here in this uh, forum knows you and follows your work very closely but i'll still introduce you formally and i won't take too much of time she has of course an extremely illustrious curriculum with which i just briefly read out a bio profile for the um, sake of introducing her here uh, professor samina yasmin teaches in the school of social sciences university of western australia she's a director and founder of the university center for muslim states and societies uh, professor yasmin is a specialist on political strategic development in south asia particularly pakistan and I, as i said many of us follow her work very closely um, she constantly writes on the role of islam in world politics citizenship among immigration immigrant women south asian middle east relations uh, as a specialist on political strategic development in south asia professor yasmin has focused on several areas including the role of islamization in pakistan <laughs> domestic and foreign policy role of islamic militant groups muslim women citizenship in asia in australia and she of course has conducted uh, research in groups including lashkar-e-toiba and jaish-e-mohabbat and many of her uh, you know writing uh, is reflected in all of that uh, she was of course awarded the uwa student guild students choice award in 2017 she has been of course awarded many other uh, such recognition including the uh, member in the order of australia very prestigious thing for her services to international relations academic advisor and social welfare advocate in 2014 she was also awarded the fellow of australian institute of international affairs for exceptional contribution to australia's international relations which is in 2012 and she's also the winner of western australia citizen of the years award in 2011 uh, some of her major she of course as i as everybody knows has written uh, extensively and uh, I'll just mention some of her major works, which is on jihad and dawa, evolving narratives of Lashkar-e-Taiba and Jamaat-e-Dawa. Her communal politics in Punjab of 1925 and 47 again is a very solid work on the subject, understanding Muslim identities from perceived relative exclusion to inclusion, uh, which are in 2008. The implications of the Gulf crisis for South Asia, which is in 1991, and several others. And of course, she has a host of other uh, co-edited and uh, other you know such works i think we we would like to really hear you more today as you all of you know that professor yasmin agreed to speak on indigenization the salafi ideas and uh, narratives of jihad and women by jud for any of us and more all, all our younger colleagues here especially everybody who wants to study islamist movements terrorism a uh, link between religion muslim philanthropy and politics in pakistan she is really a go to go person i mean she has written extensively on the subject and i think all uh, student of uh, you know this theme would be following her very closely uh, professor yasmin has often pointed out the differing narratives vis-a-vis india and the west uh, of the dawa narrative vis-a-vis pakistan which is very different and how it engages with the broader spectrum of society in pakistan unlike what we you know view it here and uh, in the western societies uh, particularly in pakistan she has often noted that women have increasingly been assigned a significant agency in this narrative and the jod's activism education and social welfare has helped to acquire the social capital and this of course has also you know prompted the reimagining of the societies uh, of the relationship of this movement with the pakistan military as well as the society at large but i will now just like to hand over to professor yasmin for and 
once again, it's such a privilege to be hosting you here and uh, a very warm welcome on all of us. Thank you. Thank you very much. As I said, you've been very kind, both you and Kamal in big uh, kind and sort of saying nice things about me, I can assure you. Uh, it's a very basic understanding that I can communicate. Uh, but just to give you a sense of how I ended up working on these topics, that's because my husband uh, and my father, they started a project in Pakistan to work on demining uh, strategies in Afghanistan. And it's at that time that a young man, in fact, gave me publications of Lashkar Toiba and also Jash Muhammad. And that was years ago. And I still remember being shocked at the barbarity of the concepts that were being communicated in that, especially in Jash Muhammad literature, which I think was more sort of glaringly very hard hitting. Uh, but since then, I've been looking at it. And I guess one thing that I've focused on is how do militant groups, but in this case, Lashkar Toiba and Jamaat Dawan, then later on, even though it's been now banned and officially, it's very hard to find out where they are, how they're promoting. But my interest has been in how they promote the ideas to people. Because uh, I don't want to sort of give background. I think everyone is aware of the Salafi jihadism. Uh, but if even if we look at it as the current wave of religious uh, terrorism or jihadism, it becomes very clear that there's a basic genre of studies that talk about jihad and when it's permissible, who is supposed to be responsible for engaging in it, and then what are the responsibilities of people. But within that jihadi, uh, Salafi jihadi genre of information, what I've been interested in is how that gets brought into a country like Pakistan, and then how it is changed so that it can be communicated to people uh, in search of making sure that they, in fact, become uh, partners to the Jihad project. So to understand that, uh, I've really looked at, and that's really the title of my book as well, uh, the narratives of Jihad and Dawa. So to briefly sort of share my idea of what I think of narratives, they're not peculiar just to jihadi space. In fact, we all have narratives, we have stories, we have ideas. Uh, it's every story, every idea that we share with us and with others has got certain elements. One is that we, maybe the narrators, so we present the idea to others. And then there's an audience. So the audience is given certain ideas. But this narration, which would be either one story or a set of different stories, they normally tell others about how we find ourselves in a particular situation. And if you want to change that situation, what do we need to do? But when we specifically look at other audience uh, and we try and convert them to whatever project we are running, then in the whole process of narration, it becomes very important to bring in an agentic element. And that really includes uh, the idea of what is it that's stopping us or the group that's looking at certain issues from achieving the good end or ultimate positive end that we're looking at. 
and how do we overcome that? And this relationship between the narrator, the audience, and the narrative itself, you can see it in lots and lots of different uh, spaces. It's present in environmental discourse, it's present in population control discourse, uh, it's even present in how do we try and sort of uh, prevent ideas about human trafficking or particularly children trafficking or violence against women. They're all con all kinds of issues really can be understood with reference to narrator, audience, and the narrative itself. I guess what I've been interested in looking at is how does this relationship manifest itself in the jihadi literature uh, run by Lashkar Toiba and Jamaat Dava. Uh, I'm not going to go into history because I'm sure every one of you is quite uh, familiar with the history of uh, Jamaat Dawa and Lashkar Taiba, but just to remind you, effectively it grew out of the experiences of uh, not just simply the Pakistan government, but also others who were there who wanted to use Pakistan as a base to push the Soviets out of Afghanistan. At that time, I think General Ziaul Haq had this idea that he wanted to prepare a group of people uh, or the fighters who could later on be diverted to Indian part of Kashmir. And so whatever was happening in Afghanistan was seen as the, preparation, uh, uh, the ground for preparing people to engage in some kind of a jihad in Kashmir. And so the group grew out of that, but uh, General Zia didn't just simply choose the group, Ahle Hadith group. In fact, there were other groups that he chose as well. And all of them were trained in different ways. They went and fought with different people, different groups. And that's really where they learned the idea of jihad. So effectively, they already had a body of knowledge that they were familiar with in terms of Islamic ideas, what is acceptable, what is unacceptable, how do you change the world. And then on that, they superimposed their experience of fighting jihad in Afghanistan. So having been created, say, in 86, 87, Marquez Dava Walid really became the main body from which Lashkar Toiba was formally launched in early 1990. And they published a lot of uh, papers, magazines, books. And uh, because of once I was exposed to those papers, basically I've been following them to collect as much as I can. And what my interest has been in to see how they have changed the language, the ideas, what they tell people, what they tell, ask them to do. But Lashkar Toba throughout this period engaged in a very clear effort, which was to recruit people. And if we look at the recruitment strategy, at least what my understanding is that initially it was very much uh, Punjab based predominantly, but most areas. And it's a, they managed to expand that to include SIN and NWFP at that time, or now KPK and then also in uh, Balochistan. And they also moved into urban areas and that's where they started building schools and undertook a lot of social welfare activities. But of course, after 2001 and after that uh, Indian parliament attack for which I think uh, Lashkar Toba was uh, being uh, alleged to have uh, undertaken that, basically because it resulted in the Indo-Pakistan tensions. What we see is that Lashkar Toiba was created as uh, something that was only not limited to Kashmir uh, and Jamaat Dawa was created in, in its place. 
And I think the whole logic in itself in the name says that it's a party that talks about proselytization. But if we go back into how they proselytize and then how they use this relationship of the narrator, the audience and the narrator becomes, it becomes very clear that essentially the message and the project that they had started did not really change. And the groundwork of the jihad state they remain in, uh, but added to that was this idea of proselytization or dava. Uh, now, how did they produce these ideas and how did they share those ideas? Uh, I'm not assuming anyone has read my book. In fact, my husband and I have a joke that he says that uh, reading my book puts me to sleep. He managed to edit it properly, but when I read it myself, I think, gee, it's so dry, I don't want to read it again. But basically, what the book uh, traces over a number of years is that Jamaat al-Dawa, even before Lashkar Toiba, through Darul Andalus, but also other publication outlets, they published magazines, basically, they would come out once a month, Initially, some of them were once every two months. Uh, and then they published books uh, and uh, also newspapers. And in line with their original focus, uh, most of these were really targeted towards or uh, were addressing male audience. But it's over a period of time, especially after the Cargill crisis, that we see there's a shift in the way they use publications. Instead of just using publications with, for men who could be engaged in the process of jihad, they also start engaging women. And it's a very slow process, but effectively that process really creates uh, another group of people. And what I find more and more interesting, I'm beginning to do my work on that, is that also gradually we see the children involved in this whole process. So women become uh, the link through which they are also providing a narrative of jihad or Islamic ideology or identity to the kids, uh, those who are exposed to it. So to simply put again, uh, let me sort of recap. Uh, Jamaat al-Dawa and before that Lashkar Toiba through Darul Andalus, they have published different kinds of publications, initially mostly male targeted or male oriented and then gradually female were included in that, but literature for women is separate from that for men. And it's not that the men don't write in the uh, magazines for women. In fact, they do, and they're often treated as authentic understandings of what Islam is all about. But predominantly, the whole effort has been to create a whole group of female uh, jihadi uh, proselytizers as well, not jihadi combatants, which is very different from other groups where we see jihads that are being promoted. So that's the overall landscape that I think we're dealing with. Now, beyond Darul Andalus, we also need to know that there are linkages that have been established, and now they're going more and more underground, and some of them have stopped working, at least publicly. Uh, but there are linkages established between Darul Andalus uh, as the main publishing house for Jamaat al-Dawa and other very uh, right-wing orthodox Islamist public, public 
publishing house houses yeah, and you could find books from one place to another but it's only when you look at the author you can gradually find out that they are in fact connected so when we look at narratives and our promise i'll come to what i really want to focus on we shouldn't just think that it's only the Jamaat-ud-Dawa labeled publications that give us an insight into how they indigenize Salafi thinking. Uh, we can look around into other publishing houses and their publications as long as they're the same people and it gives us an insight into how they're indigenizing narratives. Now, when I talk about indigenization, I guess what it really uh, refers to is my understanding, which also applies to how I look at uh, how Muslims learn about Islam in Australia, is that there's a general body of knowledge uh, about religion, which is common to all Muslims, you know, basic tenets. Everybody understands that. But beyond that, uh, there are ideas that there's a lot of debate for interpretation. And it's really, when we talk about how different groups starting indigenizing knowledge, what becomes significant is that how a particular interpretation, one is brought into a new space and then how it is presented to the people. Because it's in the terminology that you use in the wording that you use that you really create uh, that communication link without which uh, the narrator and the audience don't really establish a relationship. So that's really, I apply that even understanding when we see how uh, young people pick up their ideas of Muslim identity in Australia. But that's what I've also applied to see what uh, instruments or approaches Jamaat Dawa uses to build that link with their audience. Because without that, as I said, they won't be able to secure the help of the audience into the Jihad project. So the one which I think is very interesting for me is the attempt not at homogenizing the literature or the narrative, but hybridizing the narrative. And in that, the way I differentiate is that uh, the basic Salafi thinking, not just totally Islamic, but Salafi thinking, if we just bring it, say, from the Gulf or the Middle East into Pakistan, and given the way that words and ideas are seen in the Middle East, it may not have the same appeal in Pakistan. So it becomes very necessary for people to change, and not to change the essence of it, but the words that are used and the way in which they have been communicated to local people. And so Jamaat Dawa has been very good at that. I would argue that in fact, it's not just simply Jamaat Dawa's from 2001 onwards, but even before that, people who were very influential or significant in shaping the creation of this group, they had already adopted this attitude. In fact, I would argue that those of you who are familiar with the mosque cultures, especially in rural areas, that uh, all the good khatib, you know, those who give sermons, they're successful because they can translate very difficult ideas into very simple, explainable concepts to others. If you try and be too analytical, then you are put aside into a category which is too academic and you don't want to 
really deal with that. It's significant if you want to say prayers, but nothing more than that. I think in case of Jamaat Dawa, Hafiz Bahawal Puri, uh, who was Hafiz Said's uncle, uh, but also his father-in-law, and who was also his teacher, uh, he had developed this trait or this sort of history of giving sermons and uh, later on it was published as Khutbah de Bahawalpuri, which when you read that, you start wondering, you know, where is it coming from? What is he saying? But he uses terminology which is very simple, very colloquial, very local. And if you know those terminologies, you can straight away make a sense as to what he's trying to do. So if he's being very anti-woman, it becomes very clear, you know, women have to be really covered. But the way he talks about it is not in the same way as it would be done in the hardcore Middle Eastern Salafi literature. So I think given the fact that Hafiz Said was so influenced by Bahawal Puri, we can also understand that him and then Zafar Iqbal and others who worked with him, they have adopted the same attitude to sim simplify and indigenize the language, hybridize that, uh, to bring in Salafi thinking into Pakistan with reference to Ahle Hadith thinking, but even particularly JUD's brand of Ahle Hadith thinking, not the general, the Markazi Jamiat uh, Ahle Hadith Jamaat's thinking. So now let me briefly touch upon the two categories that I had identified, women and jihad. So first of all, women, I guess, um, we don't need to go too far into the literature to know that in Islamic history and even now, when we look at the rights and responsibilities of women or what Muslim womanhood means, there's been a whole literature that's really been guided by and dominated by male interpretations as to what the rights and responsibilities of women are. And the Salafi thinking about that has even been more restrictive compared to others who may have sort of some space for openness for women. This whole Salafi thinking about women, which basically reduces them to the family sphere, where they can be significant in playing a role, but only to support the family, the husband, children, extended family, uh, has become sort of part of the way Jamaatul Dawa has talked about the woman's identity as well. Uh, but there's also another dimension to that. Salafi thinking doesn't necessarily talk about uh, women and jihad in a very strong way. In case of Jamaatul Dawa, when they talk about women and jihad, it's done very differently and again in line with the uh, cultural norms. But let me first of all tell you how they present the Salafi thinking into Pakistan for women. And to give you that idea, uh, there's one book which was written by Hashmi in the 1990s, uh, which was about an ideal Muslim woman. This one was translated into Urdu some more than 10 years after it was published, after it had become the bestseller in the Middle East. Uh, basic uh, Salafi thinking about women primarily being restricted to the uh, family sphere, but also Muslim womanhood being very different from uh, the westernized uh, feminists. 
And the book also had this idea that gradually some of the Muslim feminists were beginning to realize their mistakes and they were coming back into realizing that Islam provided the answer. But when this book was translated in Pakistan, it was after 9-11, a uh, few years after, as I had said, that there was this conscious decision made to engage women into the jihad project. My apologies, I didn't realize that I had my mobile on. <laughs> uh, so it was published a few years after the jihad uh, project had been extended to include women in it. The way that book becomes very interesting is that it actually translates everything in simple words, but the way it presents takes out certain elements. So that's what I say that it engages in hybridization rather than homogenization. And one interesting bit that I can always remember is that when you look at Ali Hashman's original manuscript, which is translated because I didn't read Arabic, I read it in English. He actually talks about how the feminists have come to realize the problem. Because it was being translated in Pakistan after 2001, uh, it was a very different condition in which Pakistani women were being presented. Uh, I'm sure all of you are familiar with the fact that at that time, uh, because President Pervez Musharraf at that time was very conscious of promoting a more liberal version of Islam. He was also very supportive of women's organizations. So it was sometimes in a very derogatory sense said that there was a feminist industry in Pakistan. But then there were other women like Asma Jahangir who really talked about Islam and used that to criticize uh, patriarchal norms in Pakistan. And some of the work that he had done also used Islamic teachings or Islamic history to argue against um, uh, patriarchal practices. So when this book was translated, its introduction or the foreword kindly takes out any reference to feminists because I think it's a very clear message to say, it's okay for you to be a good Muslim woman, but don't think that being a feminist Muslim woman or Islamic feminist is okay. So even the literature that talks Islamic feminism becomes excluded from the space. And I think that is a very conscious effort uh, because Jamaatul Dawa people wanted to, I view, create a purity of their ideas that would be communicated to women in the way they want it. And then that would be communicated to their children in the way this project was to go. And so there's no reference to uh, the notion of feminism. But then I think there's other uh, indigenization of the information. And again, what uh, another example, and please tell me, I can go on talking about this because that's, you know, I, I'm surrounded by their books, so I keep talking about that. But one bit that I also want to share is that they, tend to use magazines. Uh, and often there's a tendency to have one or two page of information uh, written by women, but sometimes, as I said, by men as well, uh, in which they talk about main issues that come up with lots and lots of uh, verses of Quran, like most of the other Salafi literature or even non-Salafi Islamic literature, 
and then they provide ideas that in fact repeat uh, the Salafi ideas but link it to the Pakistani cultural norms. And in that there's one woman, Umme Abdmanib, on whose writings I've done work. She stands out because she is every now and then in the magazines, because she was assistant editor, you would find she will talk about uh, issues, for example, how women are dressing up, how women are talking about um, even fashion, how women uh, are using mobile, uh, how women are going out into the shops to do the shopping and how they behave in a way that can be very un-Islamic. And the more she talks, again, she uses Salafi thinking, but she constantly talks about it in Pakistani terminology. For example, one thing that she picks up ideas, say from Ali Hashmi, to say even brothers-in-law are also non-meharam. So she repeats that, but then she puts it in children's, uh, sort of in a woman's terminology, and also points out that not only should you not be dealing with the brother-in-law because he's a non-meharam, but even a young boy who's grown up and can see the difference between women and sort of men, you shouldn't have anything to do with it. So this whole idea then is presented with reference to the history. And again, what I find interesting is that when they talk about history, or these women talk about history uh, of cultural norms, they combine South Asian cultural norms with Islamic cultural norms. And that's where hybridization, I think, becomes very obvious. They don't say that it was the Islamic South Asian culture. But they say in our culture in South Asia previously, this is how women behaved. And now these more westernized women are missing that point and they're behaving differently. So they shouldn't be doing this. So I guess in that sense, what I really want to point out is that the literature about women um, or ideal Muslim women in lots of ways translates Salafi ideas but then it uses local idea, for example, susral, mecca, fashion, bache, and all these ideas, and then presents it to women and say, if you want to be a good Muslim woman who can participate in the jihadi project, this is how you should behave. And that really opens up the way, as I've been implying, for them to become actors or agents in uh, supporting the jihad project, uh, not just, uh, not by actually in being involved in the combat, but by preparing the groundwork, by promoting their kids' ideas of jihad, but also by supporting their husbands in the idea of jihad. So that's one space. Uh, let me sort of, do I have another um, 10 minutes for this? Um, Okay, another five minutes if you could, because I can also see a lot of questions already up, but whatever, it's fascinating, so right. whatever. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> okay, so uh, in a case of jihad, I think uh, let me then uh, limit to my discussion of jihad in terms of how that's been promoted. Again, the idea of jihad, um, I'm sure everyone knows there's a debate within Islam whether it's the communal obligation, whether it's an individual obligation, under what circumstances it's permissible for people to take up arms, what are the spaces in which they can do, 
And does it have to be the state or the ruler's permission or can anyone decide on their own that they can engage in jihad? If we look at even the Salafi uh, literature on jihad, starting from Qutb, but also other people, uh, what stands out is that they do identify uh, the notion of the obstacles to Islam's strength or return to its glory days. And in that, they are also narrators and talking to audience with some uh, uh, notion of a story of what they want other people to do. When we look at how people in Jamaat al-Dawah have picked it up, they've used the basic ideas. Uh, they constantly point out that it's everyone's responsibility to engage in jihad. But then they know that they're operating in a country like Pakistan. So instead of saying that everybody has to go to jihad, they say, uh, but you shouldn't if your parents need you. But then when they think that they're running out of people, then they start introducing this knowledge that if you're really committed to jihad, you will go to jihad. So there's a sort of modification based upon what they need. But whatever ideas they give in terms of jihad, why Muslims have to go and engage in it, uh, they try and do that in, in like for women, in manner. And uh, one uh, example is, which I think I've used it in another paper, is about uh, more like an encyclopedia of jihad. And they translated ideas from Salafi Arabic writing in the Gulf. And when you see the foreword, it becomes very interesting because the process by which this translation took place is clearly recorded in a way that says that we don't want to give analytical, academic, even you know, the exegetical discussion of these ideas. We want to communicate to people in the way that they can understand. So when the original manuscript is 300 pages, it goes into 900 pages just to simplify it so that people can understand. I think so, so this whole idea of simplification of the idea of jihad, really at, at the heart of how Jamaat al-Dawa has promoted its narrative. Now, I need to point out that since the government sort of openly announced a ban, uh, it's been very hard for anyone to get publications. So normally when I'd go, I'd be able to pick up their publications just outside a main mosque in Islamabad. But from late last year, it was very hard. Every time I went there, there was no one there. So it's whatever I'm saying is based on the publications that I've already had. But we need to be aware of the fact that they have tried to present this simplified idea of jihad, where it becomes very region specific or Pakistan specific and therefore indigenized is that while they acknowledge the relevance of jihad in every other area, for example, in Chechnya, Bosnia, uh, their focus remains on Kashmir. And when Afghanistan is brought in, that's often in relationship to how do we extend the area in which jihadi activities around Pakistan can be uh, undertaken or their linkage with each other. And so most of the literature, therefore, uh, for men, but also for women, is Kashmir specific. And when they promote this literature, one thing that I can talk about later maybe is that they make poetry, which is which I find very interesting because, you know, 
uh, they haven't uh, used, they haven't criticized Fez and Fez as much, but they've definitely been very critical of Ahmed Faraz. And, you know, there's work published or references to saying, uh, these guys, people, these poets promote wrong ideas and they really make the society not be as good as it should be or have loose morals. But when it comes to themselves, picking up on this uh, tradition that we could even see in other jihadi groups, they're very good on poetry. And this poetry is written by both men, but also by women. And the poetry actually eulogizes, uh, in case of men, it's total martyrdom in case of women. Uh, it's martyrdom and struggle of the men. And some women's activism in other areas, in other geographical areas, but it's of Pakistani women. What I have across uh, is absence of uh, references to Pakistani women killing themselves or engaging in any kind of bombing, which I think, and I'll finish it on that, links to this idea, which has been promoted uh, by female leaders in Jamaat dawa that women are basically the supporters of jihad. They can be active, but only in spaces where they can sustain their activism. And it's important that they stay in the space and not go into the combat space, because women have to bear more children and then bring up their children. So if they start acting into the combat space, then they're in fact reducing the number of possible children that could be trained in this real thinking of Islamic uh, system. I think, okay, so I'll leave it here and maybe- Yes. You can uh, ask questions. And thank I can have you. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's, thank you, it was fascinating. And I'm going to just um, get on with the questions, but I just had one thought. I mean, this is really coming from a space of ignorance, really. You talked about how you know they use local, almost colloquial narratives and ethos to kind of draw in a larger crowd. But on the other hand, the restrictive role of women is very true there, right? So while you're trying to draw in a larger you know space in terms of women drawing them in and you're saying their whole ideas of rearing children, passing on the ideology. On the other hand, I mean, if you're looking at 2001 onwards, Pakistan, everywhere else, uh, mm -hmm. women liberalism and Asma Zainger is just one, you know, example of how she's taken that movement forward, not only on human rights, but being able to, you know, hold your own, take a position, move on with it. So isn't it restrictive? I mean, the Dawa was trying to draw in more people. On the other hand, uh, giving women a, you know, a confined position, isn't that kind of, again, closing the space? So while you're using local narratives to draw in, but you're also, you know, restricting the movement really. I wouldn't read it like that. I think what you really, and if I get your question right, at one level, what we have is in Pakistani society, the difference between people like Asma Jahangir on the one hand, and then uh, Rahil Kazi on the other, you know, with Jamaat Islami, but then other women who are also like that. But overall, there's a mixing and matching. And I think as times have changed and there's been more exchange of information and ideas across the world. What, at least what I've noticed is that what does it mean to be a Muslim woman of any sort of color and to be in Pakistan 
it's been constantly shifting. So there are lots of different ideas that have been brought in. What Jamaatul Dawa is doing is trying to protect or isolate these women from this external influence that they think will dilute their support for the jihadi project. So it's not that they're cutting their sort of feathers off, so to speak. It's basically they're trying to purify them, but purify them in a way that they think the woman would be more useful. Oh, so it's a very expensive yeah. idea of the society. It's not limited just okay. to yeah. that one woman. Does All that right. answer? Yes, yes, yes. And, you know, it's, it's, it's very complex. I mean, you know, it's for you to kind of put it also succinctly. It's fabulous. Thank you. Uh, I think see Divya, she's got three questions. Can I just ask you to come up with just one? Because you can see the more questions in the chat box. Divya, what is it that you really Ooh. want to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> ask me yeah. a question. I won't read it. I'm going to get confused. No, no, that's why I'm making her ask you. But really ask the one which is like really pressing in your mind. Divya, go ahead. You need to unmute, I think. Divya? Okay, I think there's some uh, thing with the connection. Why don't I come to the next one, which is... Uh, Divya, we'll come back to you. Ambassador, <laughs> Ambassador Sanjay Singh, why don't you ask? Unmute, please, and ask yourself. Uh, thank you for a very interesting talk. Uh, I was... Uh, Curious to, if you can identify the audience towards whom these narratives are projected and what their social background, different social background, would there be a differentiation in the narrative? Thank okay, very good question. No, thank you. Uh, as I said uh, initially, uh, their audience basically was the rural people, mostly in Punjab because that's really where uh, Hafiz had started most of its activities initially. But gradually, then uh, they expanded more into the cities in urban areas. And then they also, uh, gradually, they also included more educated people, even from uh, more sort of westernized or liberal families. I hate to use these terms, but I'm just using it to make it simpler. And What's interesting is that as that change has taken place, at least from the literature that I've read, the literature that is written in Urdu is mostly for people who don't understand English. And there's a majority of them. Uh, so that's very simple and that's done in, in ways that uh, people can quickly pick up. So it's more uh, colloquial Pakistani way of thinking. When they started focusing more on the urban, but even more educated urban, that's become very obvious in the way the English magazine, Voice of Islam, was presented. Uh, initially, and again, it's just my reading, I may be totally wrong on that, but initially when I think there were few people who were from that group that was more literate in English and could understand and maybe more globalized, the Voice of Islam had terrible uh, sort of English standards. Uh, spellings were wrong, grammar was bad, ideas were not clear. You could see somewhat they were talking about jihad, but it was very badly written. 
So I used to, every time I'd read, I'd think they really need to know how to edit it. But gradually what you find is that over the number of years, the voice of Islam and the content became more and more professionally edited. And as I said, it's just my assumption or my sense that because they got more people who were involved in this, who had been exposed to better uh, command of English language, the quality of the magazines also improved. Having said that, I think we need to also know that still the majority of the audience still remains not that upper class English literate uh, people, but mostly the middle and the lower middle class. And for that's why most of their publications are in Urdu. I haven't been able to access or read, you know, Sindhi or Baluchi literature, but that's the audience that they write, write it for. Uh, if I come across anything else, maybe I'll be able to write about that too, but that's all I can say at the moment. Thank you. Um, Divya's got bad connection, but Divya, can you come in now? I just told her to switch off a video, but are you able to? I can't see her. Uh, Rohit, would you want to ask your question about the Mujahid and Shahid? Uh, sure, ma'am. Uh, thank you, ma'am, for your uh, insightful presentation. Uh, ma'am, I have a question. Uh, ma'am, how do you so see the role of LET's uh, publications, specifically dealing with the mothers of, Moja of the so-called Mujahids and uh, <clears throat> the martyrs? Uh, how do they capitalize on the grief of uh, the mothers of the Mujahideens? So, for example, there is a work by the name uh, We the Mother of lashkar e taiba by uh, Ume Hamad, the name you mentioned, I guess. So please comment on that or comment on that. Thank you. All right. And thank you very much. I know it's written as Hamma and Lashkar Toiba Ki. So we the mothers of Lashkar Toiba. Uh, basically, it was, if you look at the magazines that were published for Lashkar Toiba before 9-11, uh, uh, in fact, even before Kargil, there was constantly, there'll be, Vasiatnama, or you know, the message written by people before they went into a jihad. And there will be all these stories about what the person wanted, the mother and the sister and the sister-in-law and others, and even men in the family to do. Hamain Lashkar-e-Baki, in fact, is sort of a recapitulation of the whole thing. So it gets printed after 9-11 in the new millennium, where Umeh Hamad, who also goes with the name of Umeh Saad, and was given sort of sort of the position below the rank of Hafiz Said's wife who passed away, but she has been very active. She was given the job to communicate to women that we all have doubts about a jihadi project. Uh, but if you really get in touch with these jihadis, you know the reality that how good it is. And I'm sure, Rohit, if you've seen the uh, forward of that, in that Omehamad very clearly writes the story about how she was so annoyed with Hafiz Said, and she went there, and then she sees this experience of jihadi, and then she sort of converted to the project. And now she supports her husband as well, who had already been taken in by the 
jihadi logic and then the fact that she identifies herself as Ummah Hamad and then Ummah Saad basically means that she is the mother who is going to promote jihadi uh, boys because that's what she's identifying herself as. It's also a reflection of the Arab culture of being identified as mother of or daughter of or sister of someone. But where the place of publications like this comes in is that it does two things. One, it uses women or female leaders as the agents of converting other women to the project of jihad. Because what they're saying is that while it may be normal and logical for some women to be suspicious of jihadi activity, there are these all other women who have engaged in supporting jihad. And so if they have done that and it's given people sort of a good ticket to the life after, afterwards, uh, it's okay also for other women to engage in that project. But I think there's also another purpose, which is that it brings the relevance of Lashkar Toiba and therefore the fighters into the narration. So it's the fact that it was published after 9-11, uh, after Lashkar Toiba wasn't officially um, being run in Pakistan and was only restricted to uh, the Kashmiri part. I think it's significant that they're saying that we are still, there's an indication, and I might be reading too much, that the link hasn't totally been broken. Otherwise, they could have just said, Hamai, Jihadiunki, or something, you know, with the mothers of jihadis. But I think the fact in the title and the content being used to communicate to other women that they need to be coming to this project. Now, I don't know if that answers your question or not. If you want, I can elaborate more. Okay. Uh, thank you, okay. ma'am. Uh, yeah, ma'am, it is answered, I guess. Uh, thank you so much, ma'am. Please do come back if I haven't answered it, because I can sort of answer it in one way, and then I can elaborate if you wish me to. Um, Saad Ahmad, you wanted to ask Professor Yasmin? You want to unmute yourself, Saad? Uh, I think again a connection problem. Okay, Saad, yeah. Uh, Professor Yasmin, thank you for wonderful uh, explanation of Salafi thinking and so many things. I was just wondering that what is actually Salafi thinking? How it is related with women? And you just mentioned that Salafis limit women to family and sphere. I mean, it was sounding to me that Salafi phenomenon in South Asia is a bit more influenced with the patriarchal understanding, uh, which is very specific phenomenon of, of uh, India and Pakistan. For example, I just mentioned here, Rivayat and tradition, or like in India, Sanskriti, on, there are so many uh, honoring or honor killing the name of Sanskriti. So that kind of similarity is also there in Pakistan. So. Let me see if I've got your question clearly. And what is the Salafi thinking about Islam? So I, I guess, first of all, you know that Salafis basically trace their knowledge to Quran and Hadith. 
and the practices of Prophet Muhammad and his companions and then Taibin. Uh, but, you know, when you go to um, Saudi Arabia or talk to Salafis, it becomes very clear that there are Salafis and there are variations of Salafism as well. Uh, what, when I talk about how the Salafi notion of woman has been brought into Pakistan, what I'm talking about is the idea which says that women from very sort of simplified, and I'm really stripping it of all the nuanced differences, that women operates within the family sphere and it's religiously enjoined. Uh, woman is a carer and a nurturer and has to be subsumed to men. And it clearly identifies even the spaces in which women can operate. You know, within, if you go outside the family sphere, <clears throat> where else can you go and under what circumstances? Should you be covered? just your face, your hair, your total self, what are the different degrees? So I think the real essence of Salafi notion of an ideal Muslim woman isn't just simply about religious thinking, but it links thinking to the practices and how you manifest that into your everyday living as an individual, but also as member of a family. So women doesn't exist outside the family setup. So you're right in lots of ways, such understanding of place given to women in Islam, which I don't agree. I, I come from a very different interpretation of what women's rights and position is in this. But if you have that Salafi view of Islam and Muslim women, when you bring it into South Asia, Pakistan, India, and in line with other traditions as well. At one level, it's very easy because you're really bringing it in and saying it in your own language because you're saying women should be restricted to this area. I think with the way JUD has tried to present their ideas that they haven't just simply provided the information, they've also said, this is the context in which you're operating. And that context isn't just simply Pakistani context. It's also global context. And it's not just simply political global context, but also uh, global economic context in which women are operating. And then say, within this, what is it that you have to do? And it's with reference to that that then they start talking about what a Muslim woman has to do or not do. For example, one thing that I'm just thinking is the number of articles that you can see that talk about women and fashion industry, yes, women yes. and advertising. Uh, and in that, what they really say is that, you know, when you go and do purchase jewelry or when you especially purchase uh, makeup stuff, uh, cosmetics, what you forget is that it's part of a uh, Zionist uh, business network and the Christian network. And when you're buying that, you're actually paying money for them. So you're not really being a good Muslim because you've actually gone beyond just being a woman to supporting something that is hurting Muslims. So don't do that. And if you have to advertise it, don't use the words that are 
un-Islamic and don't use women for that. Now, in that sense, you could say that they're very similar to a lot of other movements that are emerging, but the way it's done is using religious ideas. Yes. So, yes, it's similar to the cultural norms that are present in South Asia and their similarities, but the way they have used that or the way they've approached this issue is different because I haven't come across, and if you have, I'd love to, literature which tells women, <coughs> sorry, that really you're part of a global uh, network, you are a pawn in that game and you need to get out of that for religious reasons. Yes. And that's where I'd see the difference. I don't know, again, does that answer your question? Because that's what I could understand because yeah. there was a bit of a noise behind there. Yeah, that's okay. Thank you. You're um, not just being kind <laughs> to me. Are you? Please say <laughs> No, no, I'm sure it has. Uh, Professor Yasmin, we usually close here, but it's not every day that we get you. So if you have time, we'll extend it by a few minutes. Is it okay with you? Sure. All right. Okay, because I can see a lot of interest being generated. So Divya says she's not able to, her connection is really weak, but just on her behalf, and I think a bit continuation what you just mentioned, uh, I'm just choosing one of the questions. She's asking what kind of incentives and roles are assigned for women for their involvement in jihad? I mean, how do you attract them inside it, I guess? Well, first of all, I think initially, my reading is the women who were involved in the first Lashkar Toiba and then Jamaat Dawa, they were related to the men who were already involved in these groups. So it was the close family networks and they got together. So that started it off. Uh, but later on, I think after Kargil crisis, there's been a very clear effort to get other women involved in that. And what kind of a promise do you give? Basically, what's interesting is that it's promises for uh, your the life after, not promise here. It's about you being a good Muslim woman, uh, listening to what God wants you to do, and then behaving so that in the day of judgment, you'd come out of it okay. In fact, if anything, I often joke about the fact that instead of giving them incentives other than this promise of heaven, and they expect women to do a lot. Uh, like there was one uh, pamphlet which is written about uh, what women need to do and others to promote jihad. And there was a lot of stuff about in it about women giving up their jewelry uh, to just support jihad. And that's a really good Muslim woman who would do that. And every time I read that, I smiled and I thought, why would any woman want to, first of all, leave her husband, tell her husband to go to jihad, tell her kids to go to jihad, and also throw away the jewelry in there and say, here, here, take that as well. I think they expect women to give up worldly expectations for the sake of that promise. Uh, but that's a message that I think is not peculiar to Jamaat al-Dawa. Because if we look at let's say if we draw a comparison with what happened in so-called Islamic State, again, a lot of women, they, you know, foreign fighters, they just left wherever they were, including from Australia, because they had this promise that one, they'll recreate a caliphate, but then it would give them the promise of a 
world life after that would be really good for them. So they'll go straight to heaven. So in that sense, I think incentive is really a good life after death. Uh, and the roles that assigned, as I've said, and I think I could have spent more time on that. Basically, there was a lot of emphasis on them being supporters of jihad. So they create, that's why they give all the jewelry to men. Uh, but then overall, their agency, and I think, uh, Shrita, you talked about that when you were introducing the topic. The notion of their agency or activism started undergoing a change in the new millennium for Jamaat al-Dawa. And what we see is that they are encouraged, as I said, one to play a role vis-a-vis -vis the children, but also in the social welfare space. And they operate in the earthquake in 2005 and lots of floods. And those stories keep on being repeated. And often what you'd find is that one story is presented about, for example, how they help people in earthquake. And then 10 years down the line, it would be repeated to say, we remember what happened and how we helped people. So their role has been extended to include social welfare activities. Uh, teaching in the women only uh, groups has also been uh, greatly expanded. Uh, and if I'm to go to my observations that I sort of made visiting some of their mosques, I'd also gradually realized that they would use the spaces that for women also to bring children and then start educating them as well. So it's not just simply books for them, but mothers being and other women being the uh, role models for these kids. So I think these are the roles clearly see, but as, as I had ended my presentation, uh, what they don't want these women to engage in is combat, is actual combat activities. There's very little that I find. Just a few references to Dukhtarani Millet, but overall, uh, most of the literature that I've read is about women as a social being, women as a, an economic being, women as a political being, but women not as a jihadi, active jihadi being. I, I hope, Divya, that answers your question. I'm sure that is. Uh, Mudassar, would you want to come in here? Thank you, Professor. I think that was a wonderful uh, you know, exposition on how Salafi ideas are used, uh, both in terms of hybridizing and, you know, uh, you know, you were talking about indigenizing the ideas and using it to mobilize uh, new people and recruitment and everything. I really thoroughly enjoyed your presentation. Uh, I just actually, uh, my question is maybe a slightly diversion from the, uh, the kind of discussion which we are having so far. My question was, uh, and more because of ignorance, uh, I mean, how far the ban of, I mean, ban on the JUD, has that impacted their reach and influence? I mean, to what extent the ban has been effective? That, that's a very good question. That's what, again, I was hinting at that. Uh, see, I would I always say that I can only comment on what I know I, I can sort of see or I can establish. One thing that I've noticed sort of over the number of years that I've been doing research on this, <coughs> there were places I could go to pick up their there was absolutely no issue. Uh, 
and uh, if I didn't get them, I could ask someone to say, could you please get them for me? And so I got used to it. But late last year when I went to Pakistan and then early this year, there were a few times I went to these places to see if I can get those books. But it was covered. There was no one. Uh, in fact, uh, there was just one person sitting by the gate saying, nope, they're gone. So the public dissemination of this information that I've been talking about, that's definitely gone. So I haven't been able to get, um, partly because the day I arrived in Western Australia, soon after that, there was a lockdown, so I haven't been back. But until the last day, I knew that I couldn't get any more publications of that. But that's one thing. That's the narrative. The second bit, I think that's where the idea of generational transmission of knowledge becomes relevant, is that having already gone through, say, for example, early 1990 to, till now, even if we say that, okay, last year it all got stopped and nothing is being given, can we logically assume that those ideas have suddenly disappeared? My assessment as someone who studies this and how ideas move, I would say it would be not logical to assume that they've gone. There are definitely people who still subscribe to those ideas. Uh, where the fear comes in is that, interestingly, Hafiz Aydin and his people, because they were working on behalf of certain the establishment, they had a very clear idea of the extent to which they would let these people go. I think where the problem comes in is that if they don't have that control, or not the same degree, then there's a possibility that some of these people who were converted to Jamaat Dawa thinking, but now feel that they can't be as active or as agentic as they were, they could be taken in by other groups. So the sideways you know, movement of jihadi groups, that's not peculiar to Pakistan. It exists in lots of places. So I think that danger would exist. But even if that hasn't existed or hasn't eventuated, I still think we can't expect that those ideas have disappeared, particularly with the kids who have been given stories. Mm. So, I mean, how do we expect them suddenly to say, okay, mommy isn't telling me the story, but life has changed now. Does that? But again, I'm only sort of giving you my assessment. I haven't been able to get any data. I think Christine Fair has a way of assessing, yeah, but because I haven't followed that approach, I've looked at what they publish and how they publish and why they say what they do. That's all what I can say. Thank you. Mr. Keshishiyan, would you want to come in? Well, as I was thinking, a very interesting talk, of course, but the one topic that I don't, I don't want to sound vulgar and I don't want to sound uh, out of place, but some of these women who are being forced into jihadists are also being uh, forced into sexual uh, uh, slavery, literally. And, and I wonder whether there is any kind of linkage between the frustration that is built within the Salafi movements and 
the way that these women are being programmed, essentially, to take care of these frustrated men. This is not a topic that we talk about very often, but shouldn't should we really raise this very sensitive question and whether or not one way to handle this frustration is to come to terms with what is creating this frustration. Again, as I said, I don't want to sound vulgar, but I thought I was, as you were talking, this thought crossed my mind. No, it's, it's a great question, but let me, I'm glad you've asked that because I think in lots of ways when we talk about uh, jihadi women or jihadi Salafi women in the Middle East and even in other places, uh, you can see the process playing out as you're talking about. Uh, it's not, it's nothing to do with being vulgar or anything. I think that's the reality. When we're looking at a phenomena, what can be more vulgar than killing people, you know? So I think if they can do that, so th that discussion I don't have a problem with. But with reference to Jumatu Dawa women, uh, it's very interesting because they really operate in a very different form. Uh, they're very sort of the notion of modesty or honor and uh, simplicity that really takes over their lives. So that's where they're really significant as agents of jihadi activity or supporters of jihad by not being out there. So it's not, it's, it's not their sexuality played out in the larger jihad project. It's their sexuality and their motherly identity played out within the family sphere that really distinguishes them. So in that sense, they're different from you know, those uh, temporary rights that ISIS people decided to have, uh, which, you know, they picked up on the Shia thinking, but she has got very upset about that because they didn't think it was their thinking. But that's a separate, uh, that's a separate scene from Jamaat Dawa women. Thank you. Okay. Professor Beetle, would you want to come in here? Thank you, Sri Radha. No, I just enjoyed the talk and I will continue if you continue for a few more minutes. Fascinating, really. Uh, any, anybody else here who wants to ask? I know we are holding uh, Professor Yasmin back, but as I said, it's not too often we get her, so I thought we should make the most of this time. Uh, Professor Pant, I'm not sure if he's uh, connected, but I can see him. Uh, Alvaid, you wanted to say something? Yes, why don't you come? come. Thank you, Professor. I had come across some of your work uh, uh, when I was doing uh, this research on international terrorism with one of the organizations back in Delhi here. Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit of a comparison with the kind of uh, participations of women folks in the battlefield. Because uh, mm -hmm. Australia also, since you are in Australia, uh, Australia has witnessed a large number of uh, ISIS supporters with regard to that. And there is also a growing concern about their returns and what kind of impact they could have in the country. Mm -hmm. The interesting part is like some of the women folk in Australia are also encouraging their husbands to be a part of the you know jihadi activism uh, uh, despite the decline of the activities in West in the Middle East right now, 
So how do you see the compare? How do you compare the kind of activism that you see in South Asia, particularly in the AFPAC region, and mm-hmm. of the you know, the potential uh, activities they could have in Australia? Okay, uh, when it comes to women here trying to encourage their men to go out as foreign fighters, and I think that phenomenon isn't that strong because it has been stopped also because ISIS isn't there, or so-called Islamic State isn't there. But the drivers of that, I think, are different from the drivers of how Jamaat-Dawa women would operate in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. The drivers of uh, women promoting militancy among men members, male members in Australian Muslims, and some who are not Muslims but are then converted to Islam and then go and join jihad in uh, that so-called Islamic State. I think they came more from the need for uh, creating a sense of identity, you know, finding a place as to where they really fit in this world. Uh, and it's a phenomenon we're also seeing now in terms of the right-wing extremists, that if you feel unsettled about, you know, the impact of globalization, you're trying to find your place. So how do you say that I'm a valuable member of this human community? In that, in case of Australian Muslims, uh, I think sadly at the, after 9-11, because the community learned gradually about what kind of different groups are trying to entice Muslims into how to be good Muslims, it opened up a little bit of space for militant thinking. So I still remember uh, sort of soon after 9-11, there was a huge uh, hall full of people with one speaker who was trying to tell people to become good Muslims. And at the end of it, he uh, had this show with lots of uh, present, you know, show bags and had a list of people who stood up and said, now they've converted to Islam. And I was sort of smirking, thinking, just after one lecture, you've converted the six, seven of people to Islam. But that was because it was his message he was giving to these men and women that Islam, and by extension, jihadism was the answer or doing something for the Muslim cause. I think that process opened up the space for young Muslims, men and women, to be taken in by this idea of finding salvation in being better Muslims. So that's where you can see how some women would be encouraging other men, also because the young generation has been a lot more savvy using social media, so they came into contact with this information. When we're looking at jihadi women in Pakistan, but especially the jamaat dawa ones, because that's what I've done the work on, I think it's a different story they are not the ones convincing their men to go to jihad. The literature is published by men with female partners to the project. And then those female partners to the project that it is their responsibility to support jihad. And to that extent, again, because we don't, I haven't really interviewed women like that. We don't know whether they willingly told the men to go and fight jihad. But my sense looking at the literature is that it was more than 
being made accepting of this idea that, that men have to go to jihad and that they have to accept whatever trials and tribulations they have to deal with because the men are going to jihad, not so much telling them to go to jihad. Uh, there's a slight difference in there. That's really what, and I think they're two different spaces in which we're looking at jihad and its manifestation. Um, thank you, Professor Yasmin. I can't thank you enough, really. I mean, you know, that your depth and your, you know, the nuances and the complexities all simply just comes through in, uh, you know, this uh, lecture that you've given us. And I'll just hand over to Kumar for his 